0: story analysis, and retrospective. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before listening to this review. The LEGO Justice League movies have often been a silly, refreshing escape from the mediocre to awful direct-to-video animated films we got through the 2010s in the 2D, New 52-inspired DC Cinematic Universe. Luckily, we are finally out of the woods with that, as not only is that continuity over and done with, and actually had a solid and entertaining finale, surprisingly, in Justice League Dark Apocalypse War, which kind of rebirthed that universe's flashpoint, and then just moved on to better and more worthwhile standalone projects instead of making a new shared universe, and good riddance, but man, did I need fun DC stuff that didn't take itself too seriously right then. Oh, you know, there was a lot of geek speak in that opening diatribe. If everything I've said so far sounds like I'm speaking in Kryptonian to you, I apologize. Here's a brief history lesson. In 2011, DC Comics decided it needed a total rebranding and reboot in order to appeal to new readers. So it did something DC does every so often and restarted its line by resetting its universe in continuity with something usually called a crisis. But here, it was called Flashpoint. That was an event in which Flash accidentally alters the fabric of reality to look like whatever the company thinks might sell better, which became the new 52, because 52 titles were all launched simultaneously, and DC is obsessed with that number. This time, instead of just simplifying the history and characters, it started, allegedly, from scratch, so that newcomers could read from the very beginning, beginning of each hero's adventure, like with Superman and Wonder Woman. Except for characters who were too popular in the moment, like Batman and Green Lantern Yeah, there was a time when Green Lantern was a huge, top-tier selling title for DC, whose entire canonical history is vaguely left intact, except for anything editorial decided to retcon, and is said to happen in only a few years' time. A lot of the books were made darker and edgier, but often in a dated 90s way, and everyone was given a new armored costume with way too many lines on it. It was a huge deal in the comics world and sold a lot of books at the beginning, especially with that initial printing of 52 number ones, which collectors bought every title of. And Synergy saw every corner of DC's superhero media adopting the look and attitude of the New 52, including the animated film series that started with Justice League, the Flashpoint Paradox that I was talking about earlier, and which heavily informed the direction of the DCEU while Zack Snyder was at the helm. Eventually, that direction tanked, DC lost an obscene amount of money, and a new, largely successful relaunch called Rebirth took the New 52's place, which didn't retcon the whole line, but took it back in a more familiar, more creator-led, and less angsty direction. However, ten years later, the influence of the New 52 can still be felt today, in comics and in extra media. But Cap, you ask? What does that have to do with LEGO superhero movies marketed exclusively to children? With the subject of today's review, everything. These LEGO movies seem like the best kept secret in the superhero movie world. They've come out once or twice a year since 2015 in its own shared universe that became a regular thing with LEGO Justice League vs. Bizarro League, which I've reviewed, but technically starts with the adaptation of the second LEGO Batman game, DC Superheroes Unite in 2013, which I've also talked about. To my knowledge, they've never been on a streaming service until recently. You can watch most of these movies now on HBO Max, before you had to get them on disc or rent them digitally. I understand why they wouldn't be on most adult fans' radar. They look like throwaway kiddie fare, wholesome cartoons that might be a good way to introduce some of these characters to your kids, but not clever parody that resonates with longtime fans. They look like modern super friends. But as I argued when I reviewed Bizarro League, they're actually both, and still literally super friends. This one's got that sound effect with the stars and the logo that shoot out with the Hall of Justice at the end as actual weapons. And the characters in the Legion of Doom are the classic characters in that team from that TV show. There's definitely a lot of punny and pratfall humor that may not be as funny to someone in his 20s as it might be for a 7-year-old. Although, if you've ever laughed at cutscenes in LEGO video games, there might be more for you here than you think. At the same time, these things know their source material, and they lovingly poke fun at it, with often surprisingly deep-pull references that would go over kids' heads. They're all watchable and fun, but some have more material for avid comic fans than others. So if you know anything about DC Comics, or you're a big Batman or Superman fan, even strictly on screen, watch this one if you watch no other LEGO DC movie. The second Justice League outing, Attack of the Legion of Doom, is my favorite of these, and it blindsided me with its surprising satire of modern, cynical, angsty superhero deconstruction and attempts at more realistic stories generally, and the New 52 in particular. I'll provide a story analysis, as I always do, but I imagine most of you haven't seen this one, so first, I'm going to pitch it, with three selling points I think might convince you to check it out. First, Superman is hilariously altruistic to the point of absurdity. He's so democratic, the Justice League holds an election to decide their leader every few days. And Batman gets elected at the start of the movie because it didn't occur to Superman to vote for himself. So he votes for Batman. It's simultaneously the most Superman thing I can possibly think of and the best argument for why no one should be quite that idealistic and trusting. Second... The whole world turns against the Justice League and exiles them from the planet because they decide the team has too much power and not enough oversight. In a kids movie filled with Super Friends references and it doesn't become dark and cynical itself. That plot point feels totally plausible in this context and doesn't turn it into something it's not. Third, it retroactively watches like a biting satire of Batman v Superman and it was released a year before that movie came out. So you want to watch it now, right? I'm sure I've oversold it, but go ahead. Jump on HBO Max and give it a watch. I'll wait. Oh, this one isn't premiering live. Okay, you pause the podcast and watch the movie. I'm going to keep going with the review. The plot, in case you didn't take my sage advice and watch this delightful movie, is this. The Justice League is still fairly new since the last movie, but they've made a major name for themselves. They win every fight with supervillains, and they've made the world a safer place. Lex Luthor doesn't like that there's a clear threat to his world domination plans, so he forms the Legion of Doom. With a logo, Sinestro keeps hilariously putting in the sky with his lantern ring. Lex gets help with Darkseid, who tried to get those radioactive gold bricks from Bizarro World last movie, and is operating in the shadows. He doesn't want the League to know he's cooking up his own scheme. Lex abducts an alien from Area 52. He says Area 51 was shut down, so this is the new 52. And I mean, you gotta do that joke. It's right there. The alien was held captive by a xenophobic General Sam Lane, the first hint of that satire about a cynical world in comics, and that alien turns out to be Martian Manhunter, in a reveal that's not quite as exciting as the one with him in the first season of Supergirl, but I didn't see it coming, and ignoring the silly trappings, it's a great origin for the character. Lex tells John Jones that the Justice League is an oppressive force that misuses its power, and he convinces the Martian to help the Legion of Doom get rid of the League. I like the scene where Jean suspiciously asks why the word doom is in the name of the group and Lex says it means doom for the Justice League. So Jean helps Lex frame the Justice League for destroying a much-needed power plant by using his mind-influencing powers to make them all think the reactor is going critical and the team launches the reactor into space despite reluctance from Cyborg, whose mechanical mind is immune to Martian Manhunter's power, and he can see that nothing's actually wrong through his robot eye. So the World Court, which sounds like something out of Adam West Batman, banishes the Justice League from Earth, and herd mentality sets in with the citizens, who turn against the team as quickly as they fell in love with them, including Lois Lane, whose father, by the way, is largely to blame for a lot of this, We hear such well-considered opinions from the crowd when they leave as, I used to like them, but now I don't. Batman, still leading the team, plans to find clues and return to Earth, which doesn't make a lot of sense because they're in space. I don't know what kind of clues they're going to find about being framed by the Legion of Doom in space, but that plan is thwarted when Sinestro boom-tubes the team to the other side of the galaxy? universe? He uses both words in different scenes. Apparently he's not sure how far he's thrown them. Cyborg puts a decoy robot on the javelin with the rest of the team and stays behind, like Batman wanted to do, in order to find out how they were framed, and he discovers a device in the Lee's computer planted by Jean, which gave them the initial false information that made them believe the plant was in trouble. Ultimately, Cyborg teams up with Martian Manhunter, who realizes after impersonating Black Manta and sniffing Lex out that he's on the wrong side, because Lex is terrible at pretending he's not evil. And yeah, he probably should have figured that out earlier but he's a confused alien who doesn't know who to trust and lex did free him it's also a lego movie and nobody's all that smart in these cyborg and manhunter force sinestro to use Darkseid's father box to bring the league back from the other side of the galaxy or universe and with the help of cyborg's new modifications to the hall of justice which can now be used as a flying fortress replete with weapons just like the hall of doom they defeat the legion and lex goes to prison Lex makes a communicator in his cell, somehow, and contacts Darkseid, who refuses to break him out on account of his incompetence, and instead decides to team up with Brainiac as sequel bait for the next film. Because so many Superman and Justice League stories, no matter the continuity, end with a Brainiac tease. One of the things that impressed me about this movie is that a more serious story could easily be told utilizing the same basic plot points. It's a legitimate Justice League plot. It's less farcical and more compelling in its own right than the Bizarro League story, just infused with the same Saturday morning cartoon sensibilities and trademark Lego humor. Sure, something more sophisticated wouldn't see villains competing in an obstacle course you'd see in a Japanese game show to be in the Legion of Doom, I do not, by the way, understand why Man-Bat is there. And the Trickster probably wouldn't show up at the beginning with a plot to set off a giant stink bomb. The third act confrontation probably wouldn't be toy fortresses hovering in the air like children are holding them at arm's length, shooting at each other for five minutes. But the broad strokes aren't too far off from stories an adult viewer might take seriously in a mainline animated DC movie. Or even a live-action one. That's partly why it's a good parody. There's an authenticity to the storytelling that makes it funnier than if it was just a string together series of events with no internal logic. It's the difference between a satirical story and a skit or a sketch. The characters are still pretty much archetypes, but there is a beginning, middle, and end, and there is at least one character who gets a real arc. So I'm about to break down the three uncanny similarities between this and BVS, but I don't want to seem hypocritical. When I wrote my memoir-length miniseries on that movie, I often compared that story to a cartoon. There are a lot of elements there that feel like things kids would do with action figures, like the pointless Batmobile chase and a big monster showing up at the end after two heroes that have to fight because it's cool suddenly seem like great friends. But things like Lex trying to prove to the world that Superman is too good to be true and Batman deciding to take Superman down because he has good reason to believe Superman is a threat to the planet have tons of story and thematic potential. They just aren't handled in a mature or intelligent way there. So yes, BVS looks like the kind of cartoon this is but thinks it's Citizen Kane and I'm not saying this Lego Justice League movie has a sophisticated story because it has story elements that are in BVS. I'm saying that there's a solid comic book plot in this movie, even while it's satirizing stories that are like BVS. And sadly, even in the context of a goofy parody, the things both movies are doing make more sense and are more effective here than they are in BVS. So here are those similarities. A, the world loves the Justice League at the start here, just like they do Superman in BVS, and they're easily turned against our heroes, also like in that movie. This is a world of simple-minded, gullible idiots who need superheroes to solve all their problems for them, like in 60s Batman, because this is making fun of groupthink and drones who listen to whatever the media tells them. So I believe they all love the heroes and that they all turn on them when the team gets framed. I didn't buy most people trusting Superman at the end of Man of Steel in the first place. B, Lex has a frame-up plot designed to turn everyone against the heroes, just like he does in BVS with Superman. Except I understand what he's doing and why here, and there's nothing convoluted about it. He's even using an extraterrestrial being with Martian Manhunter, kind of like he does with Zod slash Doomsday in BVS. Lex is still a master manipulator who uses people to his own ends. He's even planning to double-cross Darkseid here, and he's also not good at hiding his sinister motives. But that's because it's funny and on purpose. And by the way, these are also both stories that in some way include Lex and Darkseid, or at least the new gods in some way. See, the League runs away like Superman does in BVS when people turn against them. But not because they're hopeless and defeated right away, but because it's the law. I love the one moment Superman puts his foot down and won't let Batman have his way, even though Batman is the elected leader. Batman wants to stay on Earth and hide in the shadows while proving their innocence, but Superman says they must follow the will of the people. If they want us gone, we go. This Superman is played as too idealistic for his own good. Batman is actually proved right in that situation, eventually, but Superman actually cares about what the public thinks, unlike in Man of Steel. I don't know if that's funny or just really sad. And there's not a big fight between Batman and Superman here, of course, but if you didn't know when the movie came out, you might think it's poking fun at BVS just based on their relationship in this. The way they get along is absurd. In BVS... Batman is worried Superman will become a megalomaniacal dictator. Here, he votes for Batman as team leader and relinquishes power to the guy who, in BVS, he thinks is abusing his own power in branding criminals. As odd as it seems that this movie is making fun of the DCEU before it even has the edgelord reputation, yeah, the Zod snap in Man of Steel was notorious for a lot of people, but one does not a pattern make, It's really a parody of the then-current comics universe, which, as I alluded to in my BVS review, paved the way for Zack Snyder's take on the material. I don't think you get that movie without New 52. A couple of specific plot points notwithstanding, a lot of the low-hanging fruit in BVS also applies to the New 52. If the joke was taken any further, our heroes would have to be idiots, more than they are anyway, or totally unlikable? Writer Jim Krieg knows just where to draw the line between next installment in a consistent kids series where the characters and status quo aren't allowed to change too much, and all-out satire you can't come back from. Incidentally. Creek is a guy who must know the New 52 because he started the animated shared universe based on that material I've been lamenting, with the Flashpoint Paradox, which is admittedly one of its better efforts. He's written half of the LEGO DC movies and kept them tonally consistent, but always brings a reverence and breadth of lore from the mythology of the comics, particularly in the Flash's Spotlight movie and Gotham City Breakout. The latter is probably my second favorite of these. While we're on Krieg, he didn't write any other of the New 52-inspired universe movies, except one. So the mostly constant mediocrity there is not his fault, but the other one he did write was Reign of the Superman, which I would never sit through again if it weren't for the inevitable superhero rewind. The movie also makes fun of the synergy happening with the DC brand surrounding the New 52. I think, beyond just getting a reference to the name of that initiative here, while it's clearly taking jabs at the aesthetic and kinds of stories told during this era, it might also be making fun of the fact that other media constantly put the number 52 in everything it could, especially the Arrowverse. Not only did Arrow have Channel 52, but in it and other CW superhero shows around this time, apartment numbers, officer badge numbers, warehouse numbers, if it had a number, there was a 1 in 3 chance it was going to be 52. It also makes fun of the overly busy costumes and how they had to show up in every extra media DC thing at the time. When Cyborg accidentally sets the trickster stink bomb off, half the Justice League uses the excuse to change into brand new costumes, based on the New 52 look. And Cyborg even comments on the much-discussed and often maligned decision, by classic DC fans anyway, to lose the red trunks on Superman's costume. You're wearing your underwear on the inside, he says. Flash and Green Lantern decide they're too good to get the new costumes, and I think that's funny because Flash has my least favorite costume in New 52. The fact that Darkseid has to be involved in this story, as well as the last one, might also be part of the synergy joke. Or, that might just be plain synergy. I can't tell. It makes me wish the LEGO Justice League series had started with a comedic adaptation of the awful first arc of Geoff John's Justice League series, which, admittedly, gets better later. Because that ruined the Justice League for me for a while, and it would have been cathartic. I also imagine it would have been a better version of that story than the second movie in the New 52-inspired animated universe, Justice League Doom, which makes Jeff John's effort look inspiring and those characters nearly likable by comparison. Why couldn't this Creed guy have written that? Although, who knows? I've liked a lot of his stuff, but he is hit or miss. While he wrote the best movies in this series, he also wrote... Gasp, Batman and Harley Quinn. When we get to that review, I might make history by just spitting into a microphone for half an hour. That first Justice League arc was a massively influential story, because it set the tone for the whole New 52. Its first issue was the first and only new DC book sold the week it came out, if memory serves, and I'm convinced it's the reason BVS has a shoved-in subplot about Parademons and Darkseid showing up eventually. Nobody's allowed to get along in that story. Batman takes his mask off in front of people for no good reason, just like he does in the Justice League movie, and it's why Cyborg has to be a founding member. I talked about why I've never liked that in my review of the theatrical cut of Justice League, but as a refresher, Cyborg doesn't fit into a godlike archetype, he's a teenager, he's not larger than life enough, and he's too much of a modern, conflicted, Marvel-esque character. Interesting in his own right, but very strange as an original Justice League member. So Attack of the Legion of Doom not only acknowledges that Cyborg doesn't really belong in the Justice League but makes an entire character arc out of it. It's perhaps part of that synergy commentary, but instead of making Cyborg the butt of a million jokes to drive that point home, it makes him the protagonist and he earns his spot on the team. He's the only character who really has an opportunity for change in this story and has any character growth. The point is supposed to be that he's not a screw-up and he's too hard on himself. He has to learn to play to his strengths and not overcompensate for his insecurities. He actually does screw up quite a bit toward the beginning. He sets off that stink bomb, which is the first thing in a list of items the Justice League is blamed for when they're banished after the power plant incident. But importantly, no one on the team blames him, and they all trust him. He does mess up regularly, though. He also oversleeps at the beginning and is late to the election meeting, even though he has an internal clock programmed into him. So he's scatterbrained and doesn't take things seriously enough, and maybe he's made so wacky because he seems even traditionally too young and mature to be on this team. Besides the fact that he's also characterized that way in other comedic material, like Teen Titans Go!, But a self-doubt does surprisingly come from a character place, which is true to the classic character. He worries about his artificial nature, driven home by Sinestro in the Area 52 fight, when he says, is that all you can do? Sit there while the real men do the work? Which I love, because they're all plastic people in the first place. Cyborg goes to every League member for advice, which reveals some of their own personal hang-ups. I like Batman's terrible advice. Don't feel anything and bury every emotion deep down. It's the healthy thing to do. And Superman just sings a Midwestern farm song about hard work that's not remotely relevant to the situation because this Superman sees everything in black and white and is incapable of seeing complex problems, which is why he indirectly created the Bizarro League last movie by simply sending Bizarro to a lifeless planet and hoping it would all work out. Like in the 60s Batman series, we have seemingly positive do-no-wrong heroes here with disturbing implications in their behavior and psychology if you look too close. And that speaks to why these characters started as power fantasies that were never intended to exist in a modern, realistic world. Wonder Woman gives Cyborg the best advice, and it's the one legitimately kinda poignant moment in the movie. She talks about how Cyborg sees himself versus the perspective of others, and that's an important lesson for children. You often can't see the best in yourself because you're in your own head, getting nervous about your own mistakes, and Cyborg perhaps even more so because he operates with two separate brains, maybe literally. He's a classic half-breed, like Spock, with two conflicting sides, in this case, the human and the machine. The machine is totally analytical. It takes the good with the bad. If only he looked at all the data, like he does when he sees both the illusion and the reality with the fake reactor breach. But his human side gets in the way, telling him he's not good enough. And yet, he needs his human side, because it's also the one that cares about his friends. That's what separates him from the decoy, cybot that he sends with the Justice League into space. It's ultimately that synthetic part, blended with his humanity, that adds something unique and valuable to the team, like his ability to avoid mind manipulation and his mechanical skills, which, at first, he uses to upgrade himself, thinking the problem is that he's just not powerful enough. He tries to compensate by making himself more machine instead of listening to his human side. He doesn't hear Wonder Woman's advice at all, and instead decides he needs superficial improvements, like adding a lot of guns to his shoulders, He uses that talent to improve the Hall of Justice rather than himself, in a nice payoff to the setup to his tinkering hobby at the beginning. I think his mistake in trying to be more than he is rather than being himself should be more central to his arc, and there isn't enough of a consequence to that beyond General Lane saying, look at all the guns on the robot one when the world turns against the League. But otherwise, it's a good lesson for kids, and it's a well-structured character thread. I especially like that Cyborg's ticket to find his confidence and significance is in his perception what he can literally see that no one else can, after Wonder Woman's speech about other people's perception of him. The way his mind is discussed is inconsistent with what we see, though. We're told, I think by Batman, that Cyborg is immune to Martian Manhunter's mind powers because he doesn't have an organic mind. But he isn't really immune, it's just in one eye. Which would imply he has an organic mind and a computer... You know what? Forget it. It's Legos. The fact that I'm even wondering about this is a testament to how competent the storytelling is in a thing that could easily get away with phoning in the internal logic completely. I like Wonder Woman a lot in this movie. She's the sage Superman kind of is, but with more actual wisdom and a more nuanced understanding of people. In the previous film, she was kind of just a generic girl who liked girly stuff. Here, she's more mature and takes sort of a background leadership role. Like, she's the real brains of the operation, but it's a secret only she knows. And that's kind of a stereotype, too. The boys are all dunderheads who think they have everything figured out, and it's the more intelligent and down-to-earth girl who actually keeps the group together without telling them about it so that they can hang on to their machismo. But I expect archetypes and stereotypes in a thing like this, and I'd rather have that than the airhead cliché, because this way she has a real purpose and feels more like the real Wonder Woman character. And like Superman, she puts her foot down when she thinks heroes aren't doing the right thing. Like toward the end, when Flash and Green Lantern won't stop bickering about who has saved the most animals. Heroes do not keep score, she says. Flash and Green Lantern are the weak links of the movie, with an ongoing rivalry that's supposed to be a running gag, but I don't think is funny at all, and wears thin almost immediately. They learn nothing by the end, arguing about which of them is best at not keeping score and end up as plot devices to help the story progress through the use of their powers, which are used in fun ways, like when Green Lantern makes a giant cross-eyed flash head in the trickster fight, but that's about all they bring to the table. Speaking of the trickster, that's another fun in-joke, and for extra media this time. Trickster is constantly confused for the Joker, which drives him crazy, and he tries to make a distinction between tricks and jokes, but it's a real fine line. It's like the difference between jokes and riddles. And now I want to follow up to The War of Jokes and Riddles, The War of Jokes and Tricks. But even better than that is the voice casting. Mark Hamill is the trickster, because he played him in the 90's Flash live-action series and has continued playing him the sparse number of times that character shows up in other series, like Justice League Unlimited and the CW Flash series, where there are two versions and he's the elder one. He's careful to make it sillier and less demented than his Joker. Mark Hamill also voices Sinestro in this movie, which actually takes me out. He just sounds too much like him for such an off-the-beaten-path choice. It reminds me a little of his Hobgoblin from the 90s Spider-Man series. But I still love that choice just because he's playing not one but two roles in a movie that does have a cameo from the Joker in the obstacle course scene, and he's voiced there by Troy Baker and not Hamill. That's hilarious. The comedy isn't always brilliant. There's a lot of typical cartoon slapstick and puns that don't do anything for me, but might make little kids laugh. Mileage varies with punny humor. I like a lot of puns, but the stuff here is pretty routine. I get that I'm not the real target audience for this, and I'm impressed with just how much really is here for me. The stuff I most tune out for is the immature, sometimes bathroom humor. There's not a ton, but there's enough that it's mildly irritating. Not just the stink bomb but Sinestro flushing the Justice League down a drain in space, and then he cannot stop talking about how clever he is for doing a toilet gag, and jokes like Superman misunderstanding the figure of speech butt out and saying Batman would never tell you to stick your butt out. Okay. I also appreciate how the characters in the world continue to play everything straight, like everything about this plastic building block world is totally normal, even when they themselves are silly. With the exception of people not knowing what high fives are because they have claw hands. I mean, that's funny, but why would anyone say high five in a world where no one has five fingers? The Dark Side is the best example of that. He has no idea he's even in a Lego world. He's not a parody of Dark Side, he never cracks a joke, and there's nothing funny about him except he's a plastic minifig who sounds and acts just like Dark Side should. He's awesome. He's voiced, once again, by Tony Todd, who should seriously play Darkseid in everything. It's almost like somebody handed Tony Todd just his lines and didn't tell him that these movies were about Legos. The animation is consistently well-detailed, again, with realistic enough textures, vibrant colors, and dynamic enough action for a thing that feels like it's being created by children playing with toys. The quality control on these, visually, has always been top-notch. I think this story is so much fun, and there's such a variety of elements to entertain kids and adults alike, both in the comedic story and the action set pieces, that LEGO should have done the reverse of LEGO Batman 2 and turned this into a video game. There would be plenty of characters to play as, as engaging a story as any of the original video games have had to tie their levels together, and it would have been the perfect follow-up to LEGO Batman 2 as a LEGO Justice League game, branding that has never been used in those games, even though some of the characters have. Just add some extra space adventures after Sinestro sends the League to the other side of some amount of space, and you're good to go. Before we get to my rating, it's time for tweet-length reviews from the Patrons, and unsurprisingly, I've only got one this time. It comes from Christian Ogden, who says, I wasn't a fan of how stupid they made Manhunter, but the movie has charming animation, a good voice cast, and a smarter sense of humor than I was expecting. It may be aimed at kids, but it proves that keeping something simple isn't always a bad idea. Three out of four. Of all of these, this is the one I most think about going back to. But honestly, I've never rewatched any of these outside of Rewind. Admittedly, as hard as I've tried to sell this, I wasn't as impressed with it this watch just because the election scene with Superman voting for Batman was so burned into my brain, I remembered more of this movie including those sorts of clever gags for comic fans than it really does. But what's here is surprising and ten times more creative than it had to be. I don't like the ending, where General Lane's comeuppance for kidnapping Martian Manhunter being an anti-alien bigot and acting totally on his own with no orders from the government, which I guess is how you get away with looking like a less bleak and hopeless LEGO DC universe, is that Martian Manhunter controls his mind and makes him dance uncontrollably. It's not funny, but it's also ethically wonky. I know it's just for a joke and I know these are just Legos, but how long does the League plan on doing that to General Lane? John's answer to a personal violation is to personally violate someone else? Okay, I don't mean to take this thing too seriously, but that's the farthest over the total farce line it crosses, and there's nothing else like that in the movie. Why do so many of these animated superhero comedies have a difficult time coming up with a memorable joke to leave us with? So, taking the delightful with the lame, I'm giving LEGO Justice League Attack of the Legion of Doom a 3 out of 4. Thanks a lot for listening to this one, folks. Really appreciate it. It's time now to put this movie on my ranked list at letterbox.com. You can check out the list of all of my rankings of movies reviewed on this series at the link in the description at Letterboxd. Uh, I'm going to put this at the very bottom of the threes, I think. I like this one a lot, but not any better than anything else I've given a three-star rating. So it's going to be the new 64 right under Hulk Versus. I want to say thanks a lot to all of our patrons. If you would like to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash At the bottom $2 tier, you'll get early episodes of Superhero Rewind. At the $5 tier, you can put in tweet-length reviews for all of the reviews that I do on this series. And at the $10 tier, you can become a Patreon producer. And I'd like to thank all of our producers individually right now, including Zach, Wendell Jones, Nick Manna, Nicholas Morgan, Michael Micheletti, Michael Gulick, Kareem Roberts, Jacob Schneider, Iron Bat 1993, Damon Begay, CM Productions, Victor, Thomas Edgehill, The Day Ghost, Super Billy, Stone, Gaspin, Lone Wolf, Jedi of Gotham, Kevin, Carl Maxi, Bag Studios, Josh Hughes, John McLean, Ian McKee, Dylan Muschiello, Chewbacca's lover, and Caleb. You guys are great. Next time on Superhero Rewind, I'm going to tackle what was once my holy grail of DVDs. This was an expensive disc that was difficult to get, and I had a couple of different friends uh, from the channel send it to me a couple of years ago. I'm finally getting around to this. This is Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV movie from 1998, starring David Hasselhoff, and written by, as it sets on the front of the box, from one of the writers of Batman Begins, Goyer. So look forward to that, and I'll see you again next time. Later, folks.